Hey, everybody, a quick note for you before we get to today's show, which is the weekend review. It is the weekend review in Europe, but not the weekend review in Major League Soccer, because instead of talking about maybe one or two moments or one or two games, we have Joe and Jordan over at MLS Assist talking about every single game. They're talking about the tactics, about what happened, about the news, about individual moments that you might have missed, but they certainly did not. They are staying up super late and working incredible hours to bring you lots of great content. Uh, They were in our feed if you've been wondering where they've gone they have their own now so make sure you check them out make sure you download and subscribe rate and review as well if you're feeling generous ideally five stars if you're not feeling generous and you're gonna leave one star don't do that that's not useful Uh, but again mls assist with joe and jordan they are doing wonderful wonderful work so be sure to check them out and with that said here's me and ryan doing eh, pretty good work Everybody and welcome to a weekend review edition of the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. With me is a man who is not banned from Europe nor from European competitions. It's Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Tay-Tay. I am technically kind of banned from Europe because now I have a blue UK passport. It Ooh. used to be red. I used to be allowed in. Oh, right. Now they changed them rules, Tay-Tay. I'm not technically banned, but it's harder to get in. It's sad. Let's not go there. Wow. Intricacies abound at the beginning of the show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to talk Premier League. We're going to talk uh, La Liga. We're going to talk Serie A. But first, we're going to start with Manchester City's ban or the ban that mm. was. Earlier today, we learned that Man City's two-year ban from the Champions League for a serious breach of UEFA's financial fair play rules. I'm reading this. Has been overturned by the Court of Arbitration for Sport. The court also reduced the club's fine to 10 million euros. Don't know how they're going to afford that one. Uh, The Premier League is still investigating. Uh, There was no full judgment issued by the Court of Arbitration for Sport, only a one-page press release, the sort of summary of the decision. We'll probably get more information as it comes out. Ryan, I'll start with this. Like, uh, I was on Grant Wall's podcast yesterday. We were talking about this, uh, the looming decision, and he was basically like, I'm not going to ask you for speculation. I just want to note that it's coming. I'm not going to ask you for speculation either, but I am going to ask you if you were surprised or you sort of expected this result, uh, because I will say that I was optimistic, maybe, that like there would be some sort of stiff punishment for Man City, but I sort of expected this to be the way it went. I'm kind of surprised. And I'm kind of not surprised at the same time. I've, I've kind of thought that the fecklessness and the spinelessness of FFP rules have been have been uh, have been laid out here, have they not, Taylor? And I'll, as for context here, I will say I'm not a fan of the decisions of independent arbitration panels. My team, Wimbledon FC, uh, were moved to Milton Keynes, that lovely, horrible place in the middle of the UK, <laughs> uh, based on the judgment of a three-man independent arbitration panel, which is similar to what has happened here with City. Basically, uh, some lawyers deciding that things should happen, even though the sports governing body doesn't think they should happen so let's frame it that way but I'm not surprised that this is the outcome I think uh, (laughs) we know that money talks in this game don't we yeah I I have it written down as the pen is mightier than the sword and city's lawyers have a lot of pens and also a Mm. lot of money Uh, well there was the the quote from was it from the sheikh who said that we'd rather spend 10 Mm -hmm. 10 years with and spend 100 million on lawyers than give a give an inch to UEFA basically he said that a few years ago so that's their stance that means they're probably going to win in these kind of things and that is basically what they did their uh, argument with the court of arbitration for sport as I understand it was essentially that the information that UEFA used uh, in their decision uh, came through hacks came through leaks their argument was those are taken out of context and my understanding is that when asked to provide the proper context they just said no thank you but then disputed those emails 
emails, those leaked documents. So that is where that 10 million fine comes from for, for folks who are wondering how you can get a 10 million euro fine and then have everything else thrown out. It's basically Reduced from 30 as well, Taylor, you should say. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. We, I, think, I think I noted that, but yes, worth re- reiterating that again. Uh, yeah. No, but, but I think that comes from uh, a failure to cooperate with the investigation. It doesn't really relate to any sort of, yes, you all uh, are in violation of financial fair play. Here's your fine, but not a suspension. That was sort of a uh, penalty secondary to the actual decision. Yeah. And Ryan, I want to go back to what you said uh, in the beginning of your remarks. You kind of refer to the fecklessness and spinelessness of financial fair play. Uh, we should note you, you, you wrote about Man City for a season for The Athletic. I'm assuming that is not coming from a you like Man City and thus you don't like financial fair play and what's happened sort of situation. No, I just think that financial fan play, ever since it's been uh, put into the game, is pretty imperfect. It's an imperfect solution to a, a problem that is in the game. It's it just it's unenforceable, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, let, let's look at what Man City did here. They were accused of spending sixty-seven, oh, sorry, being given sixty-seven and a half million pounds annually for the shirt sponsorship on their shirts, but it was only actually eight million they got from the airline, and the rest came from within the company. So, inflating, overstating sponsorships. So they get a two-year ban for this, right? Mm. And, it's, and let's ignore the fact that it's discovered via leaks, which kind of shows that UEFA didn't do their job properly in the first place because it, it, their investigation showed nothing, but it had to come from a leak. And the guy who did the leaks is uh, in prison for like 147 crimes right now. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that doesn't really stand up too, too, too well in court. It's, it's more the case that FFP... So, yeah, let, they, overst- they overstated their city... Uh, their, their shirt sponsorship, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Juventus are paid $100 million a year to have Jeep on their shirts. Jeep are owned by Juventus's owners. Paris Saint-Germain were, uh, were paid 200 million euros to have uh, the airline of the Qatari royal family, of, of the Qatari nation, I should say, on their shirts. Uh, you know, there's a little bit of crossover of ownership there. They paid 400 million for Mbappé and Neymar shortly after this came in. UEFA actually said that that was overstated. They broken the rules there. They didn't get banned. No. So and, and you can go you can go on and on you can go to Chelsea with Gazprom with who have pretty tight links to Roman Abramovich as well. There's all this kind of insider dealing going on at all different clubs, and it's just not uniformly uh, enforced these rules because lots of people are doing it. I'm not defending Manchester City. I'm not defending the art, the art of doing this, but lots of people are doing it. Mm-hmm. My problem is Taylor. FFP assumes that soccer can be a level play, a level playing field. Soccer is not equal, and it never will be. West Brom will never have the power of Man City unless they have a, a shake or someone come in with, with all the power. And what I don't like about FFP, Taylor, is that it kind of assumes that the heritage clubs, I'll call them, the, the big clubs, the Man, Man United, the AC Milans and all those, they're kind of locked in and no one else can come into their club. No one else, no other owner can put their own money into a club. They are punished if they put their own money into a club to, to try and compete with the Real Madrids and the Barcelonas. Mm-hmm. That's a closed club, according to FFP, isn't it? We're not really allowed into it. So that's what my problem is. It's kind of anti-competitive in a way. And there's a clip of Gary Neville from a little while ago, which has been circulating on Twitter today, saying as an owner of Salford, he's... he's He's against FFP. It doesn't necessarily apply to them, but it means him as an owner, he, you know, he's being limited as to what he can spend. And then I, then I look at what FFP is for, Taylor. It's for sustainability of clubs, right? Not to spend beyond their means. Then you look at your Manchester United and your Barcelonas who have nine-figure debts, who've got debt coming out of their ears. Is that sustainable? And then you look at Man City who have zero debt. 
They're being run responsibly, one could argue, and they've been punished for it. Once again, I'm not sticking up for Man City here. They broke the rules. You kind of are. Or, or maybe, again, you kind of are by saying they have no debt and they're run responsibly. I'm, what I'm saying is the, the FFP is wrong. The rules are kind of wrong. I, I don't think there's any way the FFP survives this. In yeah. its current iteration. I think I think that is definitely true. And I think that is where I am on it. Is that like you can go into like, you know, lots of other teams are doing it. And I'm not necessarily saying that this is what you're saying. But like there's an element of whataboutism there. But the reality is yeah. lots of teams are doing it because it's a loophole. And there's uh, for some reason the quote that stuck out to me was uh, from Ethan Hawke's character in Lord of War. When there's like the rule that you can't ship helicopter gunships to a certain country. But you can ship... You can ship helicopters for aid, and then you can also ship the the weapons that go on the helicopter separately to the same location, which he refers to as an obscene loophole. And I think that's where we are, is that this is an obscene loophole. It's one that maybe wasn't envisioned when Financial Fair Play was originally drafted. Mm-hmm. And I think, I'm going to guess, teams of lawyers figured out that, oh, well, we can go about the, the process this way of funding sponsorships to fund the team. And I think until that loophole is closed, it's the frustrating reality of... Court of Arbitration for Sport is looking at that and saying, well, this is the law as it is, so we have to abide by it. But then you could argue that that law itself or that kind of governing practice itself doesn't work. And so it's sort of like pointing to a broken system and being like, well, it's broken, so we have to abide by it. And then you wonder how it's going to change. So I'm with you that I think the only way things get enforced more logically, I would say, is via reform to financial fair play or they change it up a little bit. Because you're also right that at this point in its its current uh, incarnation – Salford City aren't going to be buying teams of lawyers, so it almost punishes those smaller clubs. Whereas, as you know, to go back to the original quote, yeah, like you can tie the, them up in legal fees for the next you know thirty years for fifty million euros, and we're happy to go that route because we never have to open our books or explain what we're doing, and you kind of get away with it. So, yeah. It, it, it's just sort of the reality of the situation. City will be in the European uh, places next year, or they are in the European places now. They'll be playing uh, in Europe next season. Anything else we want to note on financial fair play, Ryan, before we move the, on um, to games themselves? Your recent Hawke example is a bit like, say, if the leader of a country commuted the sentence of a yeah. felon who uh, uh-huh. was committed his uh, uh, felony by protecting that leader of that country. It's a bit like yeah. a, le- a loophole like that, isn't it? And it, it, it's not right. But also, you know... These kind of situations, they, they're, they're sort of one accounting change away from being a crime or not a crime. Exactly. When, mm-hmm. when you kind of look at how these numbers are done, it's basically you can do some creative accounting. Who knows? Maybe Liverpool or I'm not, I shouldn't name names. Maybe another major club is riddled with these kind of inconsistencies. It's clear that UEFA aren't doing their job because the, we got this on City from a hack. Yeah. From emails, which is not the best source to for UEFA to base an investigation upon. So th- there's there's probably a lot more of this going on than we realise. Once again, not sticking up for City. I don't want to be a City shill, but I think there's a lot more of this going on than we realise. And the the FFP rules. I will be very surprised if they survive this uh, this whole situation. And then, do they send you the check, or do you just get direct deposit? Oh, um, so I've got this Scrooge McDuck vault, and they sort <laughs> oh, right, of pour, they get a helicopter over the top, one of Ethan Hawke's helicopters, and they pour coins into it uh, every so often. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, well, I look forward to the, your, uh, your improvements and your expansion of your Scrooge McDucky <laughs> and Vault. Uh, but we will have, as I said, Man City uh, in the European competitions next year because they win again, uh, convincingly, uh, 5-0 victors this weekend. Uh, that was never really in question, though. Maybe the Tottenham Arsenal one was in question. For me, it wasn't even that big of a question. I fully expected Arsenal to win this based on the way they'd been playing. It seemed like they'd bought into Mikel Arteta's system. It seemed like everybody was, was happy and ready to go, whereas Tottenham, it seemed like we're in a state of decay and dysfunction. And then, of course, Tottenham go on to win 2-1. Uh, to one. Ryan, I said I was surprised by this one. It sounds like you were not. I was not surprised by this, Taylor. This felt like a classic Jose, a kind of game that Jose Mourinho would win. Play terribly, get horrible reviews for your previous few games, and then go and beat a big team. Isn't that mm-hmm. that's classic Mourinho? Now have a have a have a centre back score the winning goal as well. That feels pretty pretty Mourinho to me. And as you say, lots of people were expecting Arsenal. They've started the lockdown uh, post lockdown games much better uh, than than Tottenham, quite obviously. Uh, but I, I just saw this one coming. And Mourinho's got a really good record against Arsenal in 21 matches, 11 wins, 8 draws and 2 losses, an average of 1.95 points per game. So I will say, uh, Taylor, you may have seen I did some um, some gambling. Gambler got his claws into me and um, I, I placed a bet on um, Tottenham to win and both teams to score and also uh, Sonny to score a goal. Both wow. came in, baby. That's that, that's a decent return, I'm assuming. Yeah, it was okay. I got about four to one. That's that's neither here nor there. The point being, I felt like so many people were saying Arsenal were going to do this. It was just like that, that's peak Arsenal to lose mm-hmm. this, and that's peak Jose to win it. So, here we and are. that's exactly how it went. And and it's yeah. also peak Jose to win it. Uh, did not say anything controversial. There was no real shade thrown, and yet you still have Tottenham fans fairly divided about it because. For the fact that they outshoot Arsenal, that they end up winning, they still are playing very reactionary soccer. And that is yeah. the kind of nature of Jose Mourinho. That was the narrative, I think, that was most interesting to me after full-time went. To see Arsenal basically playing as Mikel Arteta wants them to play. They're very aggressive. They're on the front, front foot. They're pressing. Uh, they get the first goal from that sort of the, the pressing and putting numbers uh, up top. But mm. then for Jose Mourinho, who knows that that's how they're going to play, he just goes to a 4-4-2, puts Son and, uh, and Kane together, and is content to go long. And so you come away from this one with Tottenham uh, basically playing reactionary soccer and getting the result, but you can't look to that and say, oh, this is Jose Mourinho's system working, or this is the Tottenham players buying in. I mean, I guess you maybe could because they win, but it's not as though... We see them like, you know, doing aspects of like gig and pressing or, or like sitting in deep. It's sort of the hybrid approach that uh, Jose Mourinho likes when he is adjusting what he needs to do to counteract what his opponent wants to do. And so I think Spurs fans are justified in their frustration, but also yeah. enthusiasm for the situation, but then for this particular result. Yeah, definitely. And this was a Spurs side that, as you say, they, they, they were a bit shambolic quite a lot of the time. They were struggling to get passes together, which is quite typically Spurs in recent games. Uh, dropping deeper and deeper as they got tired, more and more tired, it seemed, uh, and just waiting for that reactionary goal, which they got um, from from uh, the aging Belgian defender, as we mm-hmm. say. This, this, you know, this seemed like a bit of... Well, well let, let me say this. On the commentary for NBC Sports, they were sort of celebrating oh this is such a fantastic entertaining end-to-end game it's so open and I was like yeah it's open it's going end-to-end but it's not high quality particularly no. um it's not definitely not not like a a North London derby of old this is a battle for eighth place this is what we're talking about here <laughs> so Totteringham's day is teetering on eighth place goodness, goodness <laughs> me this is this is uh, to, to be a more serious point this this is 
quite easily the worst iteration of both of these teams in quite a while, is it not? Uh, it's up there. It's up there for sure. I mean, we, we, we've talked about the Arsenal backline and their issues, uh, before. We've talked about sort of Tottenham's deficiency in terms of squad depth and overall belief in maybe the system. Yeah, I think the Arsenal backline issues were obviously more on display as the game yep. went on. And I think that right there is maybe a vulnerability so consistently maybe we haven't seen in quite some time. Uh, and it starts with the Kalasinac bad back pass. It, starts, it continues with David Luiz not having the pace maybe he used to have, and it leads to Son's uh, equalizer. Can but I then, just uh, jump in yeah, on Kalasinac, if you don't mind there? Sure. Mm-hmm. What, I, lots of people sort of online blaming David Luiz for that. That's 95 to 100% Kalasinac's fault that pass he yeah. puts back. Can I, he, he gets the ball sort of just approaching the halfway line, and it seems to me that Arsenal players' instructions are to only pass the ball backwards because look in front of him. If you watch the clip again, maybe 20 yards in front of him is uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang Mm -hmm. with no one around him. Straight in front of him. Could have passed forward. Did not pass forward. Uh, When Kolasinac received the ball, he had probably about 20 yards of space himself and sort of trundles forward a couple of yards, just turns back, just turns his back and decides to put it back to David Luiz. Not the most positive of plays and obviously a very poorly placed ball for David Luiz and didn't give him any, didn't do him any favours there. The one positive situation from this goal, Tate, was that the Spurs celebration music was sandstormed by Giroud. Yeah, that, that, seems, that seemed odd. I couldn't tell <laughs> if that was an individual choice from Son or if that was just what they played. I think that's also what they played when Alderweireld scored the, the winner. So yes, that it's sandstorm in an empty stadium was <laughs> enjoyable. Lots of enjoyable decisions off the field, including uh, the 19th century officiate, uh, official blowing the refer- blowing the whistle uh, that we saw in the Palace uh, game. We can talk about that later mm-hmm. if we want. But to this goal, I think a thing that we, like Daryl and I have talked about previously, and I think probably helps explain at least a little bit of what Kolasinac does here, is that with Arteta, he wants the defenders to engage the attackers. So he wants to have them sort of pull somebody out. He wants to make the uh, opponent change their shape. Tottenham, I think, were prepared for that and did not do that. And I'm guessing mm. that's why Kolasinac goes back, is because he tries to play it back in hopes that he'll pull somebody out. But then also, I think, because maybe the last time he checked, David Luiz was five yards further inside. When he plays it back, that's the, de- that's the decision-making that I don't quite get, is why he wouldn't take his time, pick his head up, find that pass. Because if you are slowing it down then by nature things are slower and you can take a little bit more time to find that pass and make sure it's, it's on as opposed to playing it where David Luiz used to be and no longer is and now he has to make up that ground, which he is not going to do. So I think you're right. It's not really fair to put blame on David Luiz. It just like sort of highlights that he is not the defender who's going to make up that ground, is going to make up those sort of crisis moments. But it yeah. is definitely uh, questionable decision-making at best from Kolasinac that leads to that equalizer. I also think it's, it's, it is, again, Jose Mourinho finding vulnerabilities and Arsenal not adjusting that leads to the winner because it is a corner. Uh, it's in the, like what, like 80th minute thereabout. Arsenal yeah. have every single player on the field inside the 18. They have all 10 outfield players, plus the goalkeeper, obviously. Tottenham have committed five players into the 18, and they're still able to score. And that's because, number one, it is Kieran Tierney marking uh, Toby Alderweireld, which is, I believe, Alderweireld has four inches on him and about 50 pounds. So that's a mismatch right there. 
But then it's Arsenal in this sort of hybrid zone of four defenders who are going to stand at the six-yard box and then three who are going to man-mark and then everybody else kind of picks up where they need to. But it seems like Tottenham have prepared for that because Aurier's run is designed to, I think, block off Mustafi, who is supposed to attack that ball as it comes in. He's supposed yeah. to be that primary sort of heading, heading clear defender. He does it earlier in the game as well. But here, Aurier cuts him off, and that's why Mustafi can't make that play. And then it really is a 1v1 battle between Alderweireld and Tierney. Again, a 50-pound, four-inch difference <laughs> makes a big, big difference. And I think that is sort of Arsenal being found out yet again. So on the one hand, it's them sort of shooting themselves on the foot. But then on the other hand, it's Jose Mourinho playing reactionary soccer, but it works out well for them, and Tottenham get that victory. So I think Tottenham fans will be happy with the results, but maybe still uncertain about Jose Mourinho. And I think Arsenal fans will be unhappy with the result, but still fairly confident in what Mikel Arteta is trying to do. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good assessment. And uh, I'm certainly happy. My bank balance is certainly happy with the uh, <laughs> outcome of this game. But just just to go back to that corner mm-hmm. and the Alderweireld versus Tierney, how does yeah. that become a matchup? You say it's sort of that zonal marking, they've got going that hybrid system. Mm-hmm. How, does it, how do we get to a place where Alderweireld is in Tierney's zone? And that's the matchup we are faced with. Well, that's the thing is that he's not even in his zone. It seems like there are four who are supposed to be zonal and they're standing on the six yard box. And then there are three who are supposed to be picking up the, the initial runners. And Tierney is one of those man markers who's picking up the run. The run mm-hmm. he's picking up is Alderweireld. Uh, many, many other people have pointed out that you could easily have David Luiz switch with him and be the man marker. And then Kieran Tierney is the one who's supposed to sort of be the zonal defender or who polices things in the box or in his specific zone. That would make sense. I'm guessing it's just the height difference. But again, if you're aware that, well, David Luiz is better in the air, you probably want him man marking the guy who is also very good in the air. Makes sense. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm not sure there's much else to be said about this game uh, before I end up in another rant about zonal marking or hybrid zones or Arsenal's failure to adapt. Let's just <laughs> say well done to Tottenham, who get the win and get the battle for eighth place uh, continuing. Ryan, I know that's one that you will keep an eye on. Uh, before we move to the rest of the Premier League results, we've got a lot of other games that happened. We should first talk about today's sponsor because today's episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Manscaped. Manscaped is dedicated to helping you level up your full body grooming game. They just released their Shears 2.0 nail kit. Uh, they sent Daryl and I each a-, a set, which we did appreciate and appreciate as well because, you know, you got to keep your fingernails clean and not disgusting. That's the ideal. This year's 2.0 is a luxury four-piece nail kit featuring tempered stainless steel tools, including tweezers, uh, rounded point scissors, fingernail clippers, and a medium grit nail file. Everything you need, Ryan, to have pretty, pretty fingernails. Everything you need. And maybe toenails, too, because this is uh, flip-flop season, Tay-Tay. You don't realize that uh, (laughs) a lot of people maybe don't want to see those nasty, unclipped toes of yours, says the copyright here. So Shears (laughs) 2.0 nail kit can certainly help you with that. Nobody likes ungroomed feet, fingers, most importantly... The other region of your body, mm-hmm. which you might use a Manscaped device for. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if you want to hide, like, uh, unsightly body hair. Uh, I don't, I'm not saying you have to go everywhere. You don't have to go, like, full Xerxes from 300 and shave everything. <laughs> uh, but if you did want to do a little bit of grooming, the Perfect Package 3.0 comes with the Essential Lawnmower 3.0 water-resistant cordless body trimmer. Uh, so you can groom that. You could get the uh, the nose hair and ear hair trimmer, another one. Basically, if you have – I'm making it sound like I'm the wolf man here. Uh, but you do have different trimmers. <laughs> for different parts of your body that you can use if you so choose. And inside the perfect package, there's a perfect package that these uh, folks at Manscaped put together, mm-hmm. Tay-Tay, you'll also find the Manscaped Crop Preserver, uh-huh. the anti-chafing 
Ball deodorant and moisturizer because we know how painful chafing can be when you're wearing your bathing suit all day. I went really quick on that line there. You might I feel like you weren't ready for what was coming, yeah. <laughs> uh, for a limited time, subscribers can get two free gifts, the Shed Travel Bag and uh, patented high-performance reduced chafing Manscaped Boxer Briefs. Lots of chafing in this one, I guess, indicating that it is indeed summer. Now, What's the, um, the dollar value on that Shed Travel Bag, by the way? I'm curious. Uh, $39 value added. Thanks. Uh, get 20% off and free shipping with the code TSS20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping uh, with the code TSS20 at manscaped.com. Thank you very much to Manscaped for sponsoring this episode of the Total Soccer Show. Ryan, let's stay with the Premier League. Let's go to Wolves Everton, shall we? Uh, a sure. result that... Again, was sort of surprising and not surprising. Wolves have looked very, very good. Everton have looked inconsistently good, and this was another example of that. Wolves with a 3-0 win. Everton with not a lot of response. Yeah, um, Everton offered very, very little in this game, did they? So the forwards had no service. The scoreline, I thought, flattered them quite a lot, being 3-0 as it was. Uh, but, but a very good bounce back for Wolves as well, coming off those losses to Sheffield United, wasn't it? And Arsenal mm-hmm. as well. Um, what, what more can you say about Wolves? They're looking really good right now. And they've got another Portuguese winger right. who's looking pretty good coming in here, haven't they? Is this uh, Potente? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, there were a few different ones on display in this game. We'll talk about sure. a couple other ones later. But yeah, Potente, he draws the penalty. And it's just like, I, I did not see it coming and simultaneously was not surprised when it happened. But he does the sort of stand up, shift the weight, shift the weight, cut back, and then pull the move. Uh, I think it's Digne just clears him out uh, basically because he's so quick and alive to the ball that he gets to it and cuts like and changes direction before anybody else even realizes he has already gotten back to the ball. And you have that contact. You have that penalty. Yeah, that's another player who I feel like Wolves continue to just bring out these incredibly talented, uh, talented attackers that they got for deep. Decent prices, uh, maybe some some questions uh, there as well. But yeah, we still have a strong Wolves team that uh, could very well be challenging for Champions League uh, places. Uh, if not, then maybe just Europa League. But still, uh, a decent a decent response for Wolves and a decent result here with a three 0 win. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned the decent prices there. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a stat that I saw that Neves, Moutinho, and Dendonka combined cost less than Gilfie Sigurdsson. Uh, if there's something that Everton have done recently, <laughs> it is not spend very well. Mm-hmm. They've uh, not, not got much value for money. And it's interesting looking at the conversation that Everton fans have been having or being, uh, you know, the, the dialogue they're having in the they they are still praising Carlo Ancelotti. The feeling there is that he's the only thing that's keeping them out of the relegation zone. It's this crop of players that is uh, that he he's rising the tide, if you will, which I wasn't necessarily expecting. Nor was I, because you think about it, it's your point, like how much they've spent. Uh, over, I mean, it has been a bunch of different managers who have been allowed to spend that money. So Carlo Ancelotti does have this sort of group of players that he has to figure out a, a system for and a way to get the best out of them. But with that said, it's still a lot of players who are of very high value. You contrast that with, say, Norwich, who deliberately did not spend money working mm. from for relegation this weekend. Um, it's not as though Everton have that sort of issue. But I guess then if you do have a bunch of disparate parts and you're Carlo Ancelotti, you have to figure out how to make them all work. So maybe it is him slowly making it work that is keeping them from the relegation zone. And then with a bit more investment this summer, maybe that is how they uh, they tighten things up and return to their, their normal ways of being bad in the beginning and then being very, very strong at the end. <laughs> wonderful stuff can't wait yeah. uh, in the meantime what I thought was especially wonderful was uh, some of the other performers for Wolves who we haven't, haven't mentioned or at least very men- mentioned only very briefly uh, the third goal Ruben Neves with the ball like 
and a 50-yard, I would say, pinpoint ball over the top to oh. Diego Jota, who settles it with his chest and then, like, keeps his, like, full trajectory. Like, he takes it in stride, keeps going, and then hits it on the half volley and crushes that ball. Just the the long ball with a, like, very pinpoint laser finish is just such a pretty thing to watch. And it wasn't a speculative long ball. It was a, I know exactly how I need to weight this ball to get it exactly where it needs to go. An amazing ball there from Ruben Nevsh. That, when, I, when, when I saw that, that's just one word came to mind. Beckham-esque. It felt very Beckham-esque, didn't yeah. it? That sort of diagonal ball over the top, which is something he used to do quite a lot. And Wolves were doing it all day. There was a lot of these over-the-top balls sort of exposing that Everton defence, uh, very much including that ball um, and from, from uh, Nevers, who stole the ball originally from Bernard. And all I can think about when I think of Bernard is how, leading up to the 2014 World Cup, I did a lot of uh, stories and stuff about how I thought he was going to be the next biggest thing and he was going to be incredible. Didn't shape out that way. No, and I and I did enjoy him sort of laying on the ground for a moment, thinking maybe I'll try to appeal for a foul, and just realizing <laughs> that that wasn't going to happen. So he gets back up. By the time I think he's back on his feet, that ball has already been played. A Beckham-esque ball, as you said. A Diego Forlan-esque finish from Adama Traore yes. later in the game. Uh, he gets a sitter from Diego Jota, but it, I guess get, doesn't get his feet around it. There were a couple bad misses this weekend. This might have been the worst. Uh, misses the open goal, hits it off the post. Uh, not much of a reaction from him or from the team. I guess that's what happens when you're already 3-0 three, three up. But commiserations to him and congratulations to Wolves for uh, being very, very fun. Congratulations to Sheffield United and commiserations to Chelsea uh, because Sheffield United with a 3-0 win. Uh, we have seen Chelsea look very strong at points since the restart. This would be not one of those cases. Is that fair to say, Ryan? Well, this is an interesting point you raise here, Tete, because... There's lots of narrative about this being the worst that Chelsea have been in a long, long time. And there's lots of uh, points to support that. But then I was thinking about that and, well, they were pretty bad in the West Ham loss not very long ago. And before that, didn't um, Frank Lampard have an almighty go at them in the Leicester first half at the half time? Mm-hmm. It seems like they've been the worst Chelsea in a long time a few times lately. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sensing some inconsistency in this team, Taylor. Yeah, I, I, think, I think whenever there is... The team like Chelsea, who have the attacking talent they do and have spent the money they have and have the big names that they do, there's always that inclination to then think like, okay, but now they figured it out and now they're going to make it work. And so when they get the win and it's, and it's convincing, when they beat Man City, it's like, oh, Frank Lampard has them going and then they lose next week and it's, and it's a head scratcher because it's not sort of like Jose Mourinho where he is fully adjusting everything he does to win that one game. Then they go back to the drawing board and prepare for the next game, and he adjusts what he needs to do. With Frank Lampard, it feels like there is sort of a system in place that he wants to play. And so when that system is sort of up and down, it does make it more confusing because then it leads you to wonder if there is the consistency there or if the players truly understand what they're expected to do. I also think in this case it was sort of Chelsea going behind very quickly and then not really quite knowing how to fight back and maybe also – being aware of their situation, not necessarily having that extra level motivation. Can still get in the Champions League, don't get me wrong, but it just it didn't seem like they had that that level of intensity that was needed to fight back in this one. Yeah, well, both teams lost today with the Man City decision, didn't they, in, in a way? But yes. definitely, uh, Chelsea definitely have, have had two blows this last few days. It seemed to me like Chelsea were all over the place in this game, and I don't think... Frank Lampard gets a lot of credit for, for his second-half mm. substitutions, but he didn't make maybe a, enough of the right changes here, and it does make me question why he doesn't start games right. Like, yeah, uh, Olivier Giroud, it feels to me like he, he, was, he was much more of a threat when he came on than Tammy Abraham. He seems to have earned the start over Tammy Abraham lately, who 
I don't know if he needs new studs or something because he can't stay on his feet, it seems. He's got sort of this Bambi and Ice thing going on. Um, you know, and think about Jorginho. He stayed on the whole game. It doesn't seem like he's very effective against sort of defensive, robust teams right. like uh, like Sheffield United. And he's got these two players acting as, you know, number eights either side of him. Doesn't seem to work very well. And there's a, there's a clip on um, on Twitter of Jorginho just running around aimlessly in this game, having sort of the turning circle of a truck and being being pretty badly exposed by Sheffield United. So it wasn't his brightest moment in this game. And and then we get to the defending. Now, Christensen was pr- pretty poor in this game. Reese James, not up to much at all in this game either. It just seemed like there was a lot of um, faulty parts in this product. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe combining the two things we said, I think we have the answer, which is that if you're Frank Lampard and you're trying to establish your system in the way you want to play through patterns of play, through continuing to play that way, then if you do come up against a team that are doing something different or causing you defensive issues or being defensive and you're not quite sure how to break them down, maybe it's there that failure to adapt or that unsuccessful change that maybe doesn't end up getting the result here. So it could just be a product of him being focused on let's get everybody on the same page for the start of next season or to get everybody on the same page so that we can continue to have the form that we want to have. Maybe that sometimes leads to them having the form that they occasionally have where they drop points and do not look convincing at all. Yeah, definitely so. And full credit to Sheffield United for this one. They were just... Just no weak, no weak links at all in this game, was there? They were, they, they were just, they completely were, were good for the win here. Good for them. Yes. So we have Chelsea uh, still in third place with sixty points. Leicester City fifty nine. Manchester United fifty eight. Man United with a game in hand on both of those. So it does seem the uh, like it will be maybe with Man United's form. Uh, like not counting chickens or anything like that, but it seems like Man United could uh, vault into that third place spot, which leaves Chelsea and Leicester vying for that final Champions League place. And I guess that's what I was alluding to when I said that maybe Chelsea aren't as worried about their position. Uh, Meant more of a joke. I don't know if I landed that one well. But with the way Leicester are playing, this game against Bournemouth was a bit of a shocker to me because when you think about a team that's fighting, fighting relegation or down there in that relegation zone... When you hear about a team that then goes up 1-0, things go a little bit wrong, they lose 4-1 to and they get a red card, I feel like you absolutely would have thought, like, oh, the relegation team went up and then kind of combusted, right? And in actuality, it was Leicester, who go up 1-0, then Bournemouth pull two goals back in the span of 100 seconds. Uh, in the second goal, there's a tussle inside the goal. Uh, Soyunju gets a red card for a kickout, and things nice. go from bad to worse. Uh, so credit to Eddie Howe and Bournemouth for making those proactive changes that they do at halftime to sort of go at Leicester a little bit more. But then simultaneously, it's sort of Bournemouth getting it right in the second half and also Leicester shooting themselves in the foot. You have Soyuncu with the red card. The first goal, I don't know if you've seen this, Ryan, but it's uh, Kasper Schmeichel takes a goal kick and I don't know what he's doing, but he hits it into the backside of Wilford and Didi, yeah. who then has to turn around and try to make a play and ends up conceding a penalty. And that's where the sort of turnaround for Bournemouth uh, begins and where the fall apart for Leicester occurs. And from there, you have Christian Fuchs giving the ball away for another goal. You have just like questionable decision-making across the board. And it's why I say that I, I think... Though Chelsea have been a bit inconsistent at times this season, and especially since the restart, just their sort of when they do put it together, their results have been more convincing to me than Leicester. So I would back Chelsea to, I think, stay in those Champions League places. I do not think I would say the same of Leicester. 
I think if you went on current momentum, I would probably agree. Yes, uh, uh, before the lo- uh, lockdown, before the restart, Leicester were eight points in front of Man United. They had a better goal difference by 16. Yeah. The gap is now one point and three goals. United have a game in hand also. So that sort of tells you the swig. It tells you that maybe if there's one team in the Premier League who has not fared very well post-restart, it be Brendan Rodgers' boys. <laughs> it be Brendan Rodgers' boys, indeed. Uh, so that is about all I had on the Premier League, aside from uh, well done to Villa for uh, getting uh, all three points against Crystal mm. Palace. Christian Benteke sent off in that one. Uh, so he will miss the next three games. So too will Soyunju, uh, as I mentioned, for Leicester City, which could be even more problematic for them with James Madison still with injury. Uh, yeah. So tough times for Leicester ahead. Uh not so much tough times for us ahead as we move to talk about uh, La Liga and Serie A. But before we do either of those things, we should talk about today's sponsor, Hawthorne. Uh, Hawthorne are basically providers of all of the products you need to smell terrific. So Manscaped will keep you groomed, and then Hawthorne will make you smell and look lovely. Uh, they will provide you with personalized products like deodorant, shampoo, body wash, and you can figure out what works for you by taking a quick quiz about sort of what products you need, what your skin sensitivity is like, what your hair is like, what your skin is like, and then from there they'll recommend products that are sort of tailored to your needs, your your wants. Ryan, is there any product that you uh, could be taking a quiz for that you might need? I think so. I'm, I came from the school of, well, um, when I grew up, it was just Lynx Africa, which I think is called Axe Body Spray here. And that, that was like <laughs> oh, your no. one defense uh, if, you were trying to, if you were trying to smell good. So my mentality needs to shift far from there. So I could very much do with taking a quiz to uh, find out the ideal scent for myself. And uh, uh, the Hawthorne Cologne quiz is very easy to take part in. Very easy. And it smells yeah. great. Was, was the axe, was that a like choice or was that a, a matter of necessity? Of like, oh, it's after gym class. I don't feel like showering. So I'm going with uh, axe. Or were you like, I'm putting on that axe to go outside? Oh, I remember after PE lessons. Like, there we go. Okay. Um, is it, it's called Africa. It was like the sort of stereotypical one in the UK. This new flavor came out when I was a young, maybe a young flavor. teenager. Uh, <laughs> did you have that here? I, I don't think so. When we had Axe body spray, and I remember this is why teenagers are, are, are shouldn't be allowed in charge of their own decisions. Because I remember being <laughs> a teen and thinking like, yes, this is this is the cool thing. This is how you, this is what the ladies want. That's what the commercials told me. The ladies do not want foul smelling scents that are uh, aggressively branded and named. Uh, I think they probably. I, I think if I if I were to have a, a, a child, which we are, but if I were to have a son, I would maybe like go like no, like get some nice products that make you seem like you know what you're doing and i feel like that would appeal more than just like kicking on a scent and being like i smell like chemicals want to go on a date (laughs) (laughs) and that's what and that's what hawthorne will not do you don't have to worry about that uh you take a quick two minute quiz hawthorne tells you the two uh two colognes that might be best for you one for work one for play is what their copy says but maybe one cologne don't try both at once don't go that route uh don't don't drench yourself just go for one gentle spritz uh but it is risk-free with free shipping and free return Taylor, can I ask, when you spray a cologne, uh-huh. are you are you one of the people who will spray it directly onto yourself, or you spray a cloud in front of you and kind of delicately run into it? The delicate run-in thing? I used to be, again, this is where uh, maybe just men in general shouldn't be allowed to make their own decisions. Uh, yeah, I used to spray it directly <laughs> onto myself. My wife was like, you know, you don't have to do that, right? You could just spray it and walk through it. I was like, did not know that. So I think that's, that is an important lesson uh, that we all can maybe take away from this ad read, hopefully. They're very much so, and it also gives your bathroom or wherever you, wherever you apply your cologne a nice fresh scent as well, so that's a nice way of doing Hooray. it. And I'm sure um, if you take your quick two-minute quiz with Hawthorne, it'll tell you, uh, if you if you want to smell of chemicals, I think was your phrasing. Yes. <laughs> it'll tell you, uh, don't do that. Have something uh, nicer. 
Yeah. Uh, so check out Hawthorne at Hawthorne.co. That's H-A-W-T-H-O-R-N-E with an E, uh, .co, not .com, Hawthorne.co. And you can use our promo code TSS to get 10% off your first purchase. That's Hawthorne.co and use code TSS to get 10% off your first purchase. Uh, thank you very much to Hawthorne for sponsoring this episode. Ryan, shall we head to Spain? I would love to head to Spain. Sure. <laughs> Uh, let's start with Barcelona, who get the win against Valladolid. Uh, it was sort of a, a weekend of results going as expected. Barcelona win, Real Madrid win. Uh, but for Barcelona to win without Luis Suarez, but to have other uh, players in there like Pu- I still am not entirely sure how to say Ricky Puig's name. I think it's Puig. I think is what we're supposed to say, not Puig. Uh, oh. But to see Ricky Puig in there uh, playing playing well, looking solid, to see Lionel Messi combining well with his teammates and provides an incredible assist for Arturo Vidal's uh, first goal over the, the goal of the game. Uh, I It seemed like, once again, we have kind of Barcelona figuring some things out, but maybe at a time when the title is already gone. I would say as a quick aside on the pronunciation of Ricky Puig, I, mm-hmm. um, uh, I was on a call, I'm working with the Charlotte, MLS team and they signed a player last week named Sergio Ruiz and I mm-hmm. named, and I on a conference call I said um we should uh, talk about Sergio Ruiz and everyone on the call was like what did you just say <laughs> uh, yeah Sergio Ruiz sorry anyway that's an aside uh this was a very different Barcelona was mm-hmm. it not Tate to the one that we saw last weekend certainly with that triumphant 4-1 uh win over was it, it was Villarreal wasn't it yes mm-hmm. uh and they've played in relegated Espanyol in the meantime but my overall take from this and the recent weeks, perhaps the whole season of Barcelona, is that they just don't deserve this title. I feel like they mm-hmm. rely, we know it's no secret they rely on Messi. It seemed like they really relied on Testegen in this game. And without those two, they just feel like they might be a fairly average team. Yeah. I mean, because yeah, I, think, I think sometimes there's like, contrarians go with the narrative of like maybe it's it's too much about Lionel Messi and that if you get him out of there maybe they find a new style that works for everybody that seems to me to be a deliberately like counter argument because the reality is if you have the best player in the world and I would say Barcelona do you do everything you can to sort of accentuate his performance not wholly rely on it and Mm. that does seem to be where they are right now is that it is sort of Messi has to create things yes he has like exciting young players coming through but he has had that for a while and Barcelona tend to then move those players on or loan them out and bring in big names who they think will be able to either replace Messi or sort of allow Barcelona to be less reliant upon him, but I think oftentimes it does not go that way. And I think your point is valid, that maybe you could throw Jared Piquet in there too, but Ter Stegen yeah. certainly has been a key performer for them. If you take those two out, yeah, I think Barcelona are, are in a lot of trouble, do not deserve the title, and I also think that's probably where Barcelona are right now, especially with the spending they've had and the way it's gone and the uh, issues with the board. It seems like there are many issues with Barcelona, and for the longest time it seemed like with the European ban that it was going to be Man City, who are the big, big team that were in a lot of trouble, with Man City now sort of okay, as it is. Uh, maybe it is Barcelona, who are the one who I think are going to be getting a lot of headlines about drama behind the scenes and what happens next for Barcelona. Yeah, it's interesting how last weekend we were saying, oh, if they play like this against Napoli in the Champions League, they're going to be fine. They're going to cruise this thing. But yep. how, how quickly that opinion has changed and how that seemed to be a sort of a, an inconsistency in their recent performances. It's, oh, it's just a mess. Like... They, they started quite intense, and it seems they, they got the goal after 15 minutes. We can talk about that, about that goal in a minute, and maybe even Messi's part in it. But that intense, intensity they had just 
slowly drifted away yep. and they just ground it out. It was a pretty poor second half. If you were to ask me which which one of these teams in the second half was challenging for the title, I would have thought it was Valladolid, to yeah. be honest. And I think and they start to get the, the better of the chances, especially in the second half, as you said. Yeah. And that is the big difference, I think, for me with this Barcelona team, is that in the past... If they were easing off, if they were sort of maybe being a little bit more lackadaisical in the second half, it was usually because they were up 3 or 4-0. To be up 1-0 and sort of take your foot off the gas, that one less defensible and definitely more of a head-scratcher. Yeah, definitely. Almost as much of a head-scratcher as Antoine Griezmann's absolute sitter of a miss from that. Yeah. Uh, I think it was a Vidal cross. It was almost a Dharma Troye in, uh, in its execution there. <laughs> it's, uh, it was like when, when your parents will... Like when you keep asking them for a thing and like they finally give in and then you're like, ah, now I don't really want this. I don't feel good about this. Or that's sort of like, <laughs> I got this, but not the way I wanted. Like it's a cross that comes in and I think two different vital lead defenders fail to make a an accurate or uh, like well-taken play on the ball. And so it ends up yeah. with Griezmann who sort of is like, I don't want to score this way. Not like this. That's how I'm going to defend <laughs> it with his, uh, his sitter miss that does rav- uh, rival Adama Traore for sure. Yeah, and obviously not quite using the same system as they were against uh, Villarreal mm-hmm. last week, so maybe that explains a little downturn in Griezmann's output, but uh, still, not great. But let's, uh, if, if we are to give Barca some credit, I did want to go back to that goal uh, with Vidal with an incredible finish, a great shot that yeah. came off the post, which uh, Ray Hudson said, sharper than a porcupine's backside, which I liked. Uh, <laughs> that's another one out of, his, uh, out of his book there. I do like to note down whatever Ray Hudson's reactions are to goals, but it was yeah. more ne- uh, Messi's contribution uh-huh. for the assist. It was this Messi and Semedo had to sort of interplay on the edge of the box. And then Messi sort of beats two defenders with this little nudge chipped ball Mm -hmm. just over their legs into Vidal's path. That is what you pay your box office fees for. That was incredible. It certainly is. Uh, it was so good that as the Vital League defenders walked away, as Barcelona wheeled off to celebrate, they all just had that look of like, what? Like, there's nothing we could do about that. Like, like he, he... perfectly weights and lifts a ball through two defenders without really ever like telegraphing it's coming or even necessarily seeing that it's on. He just seems to yeah. know that it's on. And that is why, if you're arguing that Lionel Messi should leave, uh, not to say that that's a widely held opinion. I have seen it here and there. Uh, I think it's it's silly. If he wants to leave for like football reasons, like he wants to go win somewhere else, that's a different story. But if you're arguing that Barcelona's rebuild would be made better... Uh, I disagree strongly. Um, I would... I'm going to guess you do not disagree with me strongly that Real Madrid seem like they're going to go ahead and win that title. They get a 2-0 win over Alaves without Carvajal, without Sergio Ramos. Uh, They're in the stands for this one, but they do make it 2-0, albeit with some some controversy here. There's a penalty given. The replay show that maybe it was outside the box, maybe it was on the line, uh, but it's given anyway. Then there's the question of offside for the second goal, but Karim Benzema is clearly onside in my opinion. Uh, And so I think it's a correct decision, but it also feels like Real Madrid, uh, sort of the dominant team in this one, doing exactly what they needed to do to get that win. Penal Madrid, more like. <laughs> yeah, but they, they are doing, they're doing everything they need to be doing, Taylor. Five clean sheets in a row. They are, uh, they are treating this run in with the respect it deserves, which may not be what uh, their rivals Barcelona are doing. They are playing, uh, they may have already, already played Granada by the time folks listen to this uh, broadcast, uh, um, which means they, it, presumably that's a win, they can, they can wrap up the title on Thursday. I think that's against Villarreal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, th- this, is, this has been... 
if Chelsea have come out of the gate, or of some certain teams, Leicester have come out of the gates poorly post restart. Yeah. Real Madrid are very much the opposite of that, aren't they? They've, they've been fantastic, and it seems like each player, each each game has had sort of a star player in it. Benzema has been consistently excellent, and we've seen Casemiro and Modric and Kroos be superb. But like I thought, Mendy Mendy left back was uh, mm-hmm. very good in this game as well, and it, it seems like everyone's getting a turn to shine yeah. in this Real Madrid team at the moment. I'm, I'm a big fan of it. Uh, and I'm a big fan of when the penalty was awarded of uh, the camera immediately cutting to Sergio Ramos in the crowd. <laughs> well, I'm going to talk about him in a moment. Uh, but yeah, Ferland Mendy, uh, like it, it felt for all the world like, okay, yeah, I see why he's the Marcelo replacement because yeah, it was it, it was bombing forward, uh, getting into the attacking position and drawing that foul that leads to the penalty. Yeah. And then, yes, it cuts to Sergio Ramos, who uh, there has been the mask controversy uh, regarding Gareth Bale. We'll talk about that. But Sergio Ramos wearing his mask with the nose poking out. Don't wear your mask like that. It's not how you're supposed to wear it. It's it's the equivalent to miswearing your underwear, as many people smarter than I have pointed out. <laughs> uh, and yes, we did have Sergio Ramos wearing a clearly like tailored, custom-designed, very expensive face mask, but then not wearing it properly sort of defeats the purpose. Uh, but I think also maybe he was just so agitated by not being able to take the penalty that he couldn't even focus on wearing the mask properly. Well, if we're going to talk about Real Madrid players on the sidelines not wearing their masks properly, yeah. there was someone doing it slightly better, as most people will have seen Gareth Bale uh, when he saw Real Madrid's fifth and final mm-hmm. substitute go onto the field, uh, sort of laughed sarcastically and sort of put his mask over his eyes, yep. uh, deciding to pretend he was going to sleep. And I've got to hand it to him. This guy is on 350 grand a week. He's probably playing golf more than he's playing soccer. And he's just trolling his employers. I love it. What's the, not thing I, the thing I love about this is looking at it again, he still covers his mouth and nose. <laughs> like, he covers <laughs> his entire face, so he is technically wearing the mask properly, just not in the intended way of still being able to see. So credit to Gareth Bale for pulling off a proper mask-wearing uh, approach, while simultaneously, yeah, it seems trolling Real Madrid. Uh, and, and every time I, I wonder... Like, like, is this because I read about this? I read about this. I didn't see it live, and we didn't get enough sort of footage of it happening to know if it was him. Like, just being goofy. Because uh, even when the penalty goes in, like, uh, I think, or no, with the second goal where there's the debate about offside, when it cuts to Ramos and Carvajal in the stands, they're definitely like teasing their teammates about not being able to score like clean goals or something like that. Yeah. And there's seen, and I was wondering if there was playfulness to this, if it was just Bale goofing around. And then I remembered the Wales Golf Madrid uh, <laughs> tweet. And I think anytime you're publicly saying that one of those things is not your priority, you can then go ahead and read into covering your entire face with a mask and pretending to sleep uh, as the game is ongoing. Yeah, and, and you have to wonder how many allies he has in, in those stands who would actually find it funny along with him. Not, not oh, no, no, that'd be the worst to do that and get no reaction. Oh, no, that's just a, that's, that's a joke fully falling flat. Uh, maybe he'd be more appreciated uh, at Juventus uh, or potentially Atalanta, though I doubt it Atalanta since they seem very uh, system-oriented. But our mm. final game we're going to talk about, Juve 2, Atalanta 2. Uh, I, I th- you went with Penal Madrid. I don't know how you work penalty into Juve, but there's got to be a way because they uh, get the draw here courtesy of two penalties. Uh, I am still sort of confused about why they were given, um, even if they seem like obvious handballs. My understanding was the rule of the rule change was that if you don't have the time to react, uh, then they're going to kind of give you a little bit of leniency. Instead, the official blows aggressively for the handball both times. Uh, Ronaldo dispatches both of them. Uh, but it is still Atalanta being Atalanta, being very exciting. The movement, the possession, the problem causing, uh, all of those things are why they are so much fun to watch. 
Very much so. Very fun. And uh, yeah, it, was, it, it did seem like an undeserved draw for Juventus on balance mm-hmm. of play. Uh, it's with the, with the penalty situations. I did enjoy how I think it was Martin Drun who gave away the first penalty. Yeah. Um, and it sort of hit his elbow. And then slow motion afterwards, pointing to his elbow, complaining as if to like, yeah, we all saw it hit your elbow. That's not what's <laughs> under the contention here, Martin. I, I think I think what he was trying to say is that he had it tucked in. And so, yes, it hits his elbow. But if his elbow hadn't been there, it would have just hit his torso. Mm. But then there is the point of like, that's fine. Then it would have hit your torso, but it didn't. It hit your elbow. That's part of your arm. That's a handball. I like. I, I'm with you, and I think similar. Uh, the second, the second one, which is given on Luis Muriel, like it's a pass going away from the goal. Uh, it's Juve sort of have possession, or they're keeping possession alive. They're recycling the ball. Yeah. He tries to make a play on it. His arm is there. But he, in my opinion, does not know anything about that. And we have seen that not be given. Uh, it seemed to me that the way this was being sort of interpreted was that if that were the attacker, if there's any semblance of a handball, again, it's what happens uh, to Sacco in the Crystal Palace game. Like, if, if there's any semblance of the attacker getting any advantage from a handball, that goal is getting chalked off. But a defender, they're not going to punish that way. Maybe that's just a Premier League thing, and I'm allowing that to kind of bleed into my understanding of all soccer. But both of these seemed harsh to me. That said, I do love Atalanta quite a little bit. Uh, yeah. And so maybe it was also me just sort of seeing those through Atalanta colored lenses. I don't think so. I think they were very unlucky. These were basically they had a very unlucky game where two handball calls let them down and took three points or two points away from them. Yeah. They are a joy to watch, aren't they? They, they just seem like they can unlock any defense. They got this wonderful movement on and off the ball. They're they're pressing really high and furious. They're just it's it's just lovely the the, yep. the the passing combinations, the speed they do everything at. I love it. They're they're fun to watch, and they're probably going to win the Champions League, right? Am I going to bet <laughs> on that right now? They're gonna they're going to win the Champions League. Confirmed? Yes. Confirmed. Are you going to bet on them to get past PSG? Because I do think that is a safe bet. Yeah, I would for sure. Yeah. I mean, um, PSG won't have played. Play, they played a friendly at the weekend, but they won't have played yeah. a competitive game since March going into yeah. a tournament in August and you've got Atalanta absolutely steaming ahead in with a shout with the Serie A title are they not if I work it out mathematically perhaps yeah I think I think if they had won it would be much more of a talking point because they would yeah. have jumped Lazio and then they would actually be in second place I think they remain yeah. in third but seem to be the form team aside from Juve mm. but with that in mind uh, I think especially with the way the draw went you could ha- you could have like Atalanta if they get past PSG they're likely to in my opinion meet Atletico Madrid uh, in the next round, it's RB Leipzig versus Atleti uh, there. Uh, so you never know. Uh, but I, I, again, Leipzig, with the kind of break they're going to have uh, and the intermittent form they have had, I could see Atleti like sort of grinding their way through. And Atletico Madrid, uh, Atalanta semifinal in the Champions League is n- number one, not a thing I think anybody would have bet on. Uh, I also don't think anybody would have bet on Atalanta Leipzig. So either way. Yeah. Um, but number two, I think it would just be a fascinating game because of what, uh, I, if it is Leipzig, At- Atalanta, I think what both teams do there from an attacking and pressing standpoint, but then also if it's, uh, Atleti versus, uh, Atalanta, a lot of ATs in there, uh, then that will be equally captivating. So regardless, I am just hoping Atleti, or Atlanta, oh boy. I'm, I'm struggling with the ATs. I'm hoping that Atalanta are able to get that result because I do want to see them keep going and keep that sort of Cinderella story alive, even at a time when I think they're probably not going to end up on top of Serie A. Yeah, and uh, the one thing we have to figure out now, of course, Taylor, is how to watch these Champions League games because I can't quite figure it out right now. CBS? <laughs> yeah, but how? Is it on, what, how on CBS? I don't even know. Eh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We'll, <laughs> we'll find it out. Uh, and when we do, we'll be sure to let people know. But since I can no longer uh, 
figure out the distinction between Atalanta, Atletico, and Atlanta, I think maybe it's time for the this show to come to a close. So any other uh, games you wanted to get to? Any other points you wanted to make before we wrap up this weekend review? Uh, I think one thing we didn't touch on was the Sheffield United thing. I'd just like to state for the record that Sheffield United were promoted from the championship. Norwich were too. Uh, uh, Norwich were champions of the championship, of course. Mm-hmm. Norwich were relegated this weekend. Sheffield United beat Chelsea 3-0. Uh, I think that shows you, uh, tells you a lot about their relative approaches. We knew that Norwich were going to struggle with their sort of gung-ho attacking uh, styles. But Sheffield United have j- just deserve so, so much credit for what they've achieved this season. Absolutely. Bravo, boys. Bravo. Bravo. And also a reminder that spending money is a good idea in the right moments at the right time, so the right price. And I think Sheffield United did that. I think Norwich mm-hmm. were uh, maybe less inclined to spend that money. I think they're content to almost be, in my mind, a, like more attacking Burnley. Yeah. It's sort of yo-yo back and forth. They're not going to change their plans too much. They're going to trust in Denia Farka. They're going to probably back him in the in the championship. I would guess they'll be challenging for promotion next season. I don't think that they're going to struggle too much uh, with the championship. And so we may just see them kind of yo-yo for a bit until they've got the money that they need to build the training grounds to get a little bit more depth in the squad to sort of modernize a bit and then uh, modernize the facilities, I should say, which is basically what Burnley did. And then they become a fixture uh, long term. At least I'm assuming that's the goal. Modernize the facilities. You've never been to Norwich, have you? Oh, boy. <laughs> I have not. I'm assuming they're lovely and state-of-the-art all over the place. i got to just leave that one hanging in the air. <laughs> all right, my friend. Well, Ryan, thank you very much for talking all of the, uh, the weekend with me today. Always a pleasure. Never a joy.